In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me, that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins and the grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, St. Joseph, my Father and Lord, my guardian angel, intercede for me. Lord, as we contemplate your presence with us, savoring that prayer of St. Thomas the Apostle, my Lord and my God, we use another prayer of petition of the apostles who contemplated you, lost in deep prayer to your Father God. And we join them and address the same words to you, Lord, teach me to pray, teach us to pray. And Jesus responds by saying, when you pray, say, Father. What does this mean? Well, it means what it means, but it also means contemplate how much God loves you. When you, anytime you start to pray, implicitly and explicitly reflect on God's infinite love for you, translated in human form through his incarnate divine Son, Jesus Christ. Our topic for this time of prayer is mental prayer. There's varying terminologies for that phrase, mental prayer. One phrase which is more classical and traditional is Lexio Divina, literally meaning divine reading. In the early church, contemplation of the Word of God, especially the Gospel, was called Lexio Divina. Or quiet time with our Lord, or meditation, contemplation, even though there are precise technical meanings, but for our intents intents and purposes, we want to contemplate the need to spend quiet time with Jesus, listening to him through the medium of his actions, of his sentiments, and of his teachings, directly from the gospel, elaborated by the rest of the New Testament, prefaced by the writings of the Old Testament, especially the Psalms and Proverbs, but the whole body of the Old Testament, as St. Augustine says, that it is illuminated through the light of Christ, that we understand the Old Testament from the vantage point of the light of Jesus. One of the legacies of St. Jose Maria the founder of Opus Dei, was the constant encouragement, if not exhortation, to spend quiet time with our Lord. Because this endeavor of bringing Jesus to the summit of every human activity is not the work of the human person, but it is the work of God, and therefore we must 
employ supernatural means. The most important among the supernatural means is prayer, contemplation, conversation with Jesus. In fact, there's many anecdotes, but I recall one when he pulled his future successor aside out of the blue. St. Josemaria was a charismatic person, very spontaneous, with a whole array of emotions that he would display often. He pulled the future Bishop Javier Echeverria, who would become prelate after Blessed Alvaro, and he addressed him by his name, Javier. Javier, I never want you to forget it. The only means we have in Opus Dei is prayer. And when we think we have all the necessary human means, we must always remember we do not have any means but prayer. Prayer is the secret of Opus Dei, an open secret, and it's the only arm of Opus Dei we have. Why this heavy emphasis on prayer? In the prehistory of Opus Dei, which began when the teenage Jose Maria Escrivá was walking outside after a severe snowstorm in northern Spain, the town called Lagroño, he observed bare footprints in the snow, and the temperature was quite cold, below freezing. And those were footprints of a Carmelite that led to his monastery. And that was a very charismatic moment, a grace-filled moment. In a certain sense, metaphorically speaking, the Holy Spirit spoke through those footprints asking something special of him that he could not identify. In that moment of contemplation, I don't know how long he spent in contemplation, looking at those footprints, then and there, he decided to give his entire life to God. Though he had no intention in pursuing the priesthood, he felt in that moment the best way to be available for God's calling, for whatever he has in store for him, is that he become a priest. He revealed that decision to his father. His father did not oppose it, wanted him to think it through, and supported him. From that moment on, Often he would spend afternoons in prayer. That's not the moral of the story, but we're focusing on the importance of this devotion, this kind of piety. And before the Blessed Sacrament, he would spend hours and hours there. And he did this for over 10 years. He eventually went into the seminary and continued these long times for prayer, these prolonged periods of prayer. He would spend time at this shrine in Saragossa where the seminary was, 
in front of Our Lady of the Pillar. An old tradition has it that the Blessed Mother bilocated and appeared to the Apostle St. James, hence that famous shrine of St. James in uh, northern Spain. Back to our theme of mental prayer. From the get-go, St. Josemaria would bring the gospel to life in his own prayer. He would immerse himself in the words. He would immerse himself in the scenes of the gospel and speak to Christ in a very personal, intimate way. And the gospels were his steady diet. And I surmise that back in those times that there was a heavy emphasis on formal prayer, set prayer, which is a good thing. But that love for formal prayer, our fathers, Hail Marys, devotionary prayers that you could find in prayer books, should never be a substitute in contemplating the words of Jesus in the life of Jesus, especially in two obvious instances, constantly implied. The first one, when Jesus sojourned into the desert, the devil tempting him to turn stones into bread. Jesus, for the benefit, not of the devil, but of his disciples and his subsequent disciples to the end of time. Man does not live on bread alone. But every word that comes forth from the mouth of God, that word that comes forth from the mouth of God is Jesus Christ. He is the word coming forth, metaphorically speaking. God's a spirit, so he doesn't have a mouth. It comes forth from the mouth of the Father and becomes visible. Later on in his Eucharistic discourse, he will reveal that his actual words are spirit and life. And in the early church, they would divide the liturgy of the Mass in two parts. The first part was called the Table of the Word. Second part, the Table of the Eucharist. And the lectern had a table-like form because in that early church, the early church was contemporaries of the apostles, their disciples, and ultimately of our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, the church wanted to emphasize Christ's special presence in the gospel, in his words, not to the same extent as the Eucharist, but nevertheless present, and that we feed off of that, we are nourished by that, so this was the mind of the early church. They didn't have printing presses, and so access to the Gospels and the rest of the New Testament was anything but easy, and plus the illiteracy was uh, virtually the case among the great majority of the population of the time. And so they had the life of Christ uh, committed to memory in the commentaries of the 
apostles and the hierarchy subsequent to the apostles and their disciples. And so they contemplated the Lord. Anyway, when St. Jose Maria saw Opus Dei miraculously on October 2nd, 1928, amid deep meditation during his retreat, he saw what God wanted him to do after 10 years of subsequent to seeing the footprints in the snow. And uh, can't elaborate too much on the history of Opus Dei, but he saw that the Lord had a collective calling for Opus Dei, and that was to renew the modern world through family, through work, through the medium of every human activity. And that would, be, that would be accomplished by God, obviously, it's called Opus Dei, but through the agency of modern apostles following Jesus Christ who commit themselves to nothing less than holiness, being completely centered on Jesus. And as he was getting Opus Dei off the ground, he started to meet people, befriend uh, university students, but also workers, anybody he could meet, women. He, well, he didn't, Opus Dei didn't begin with a women's branch, but a year and a half later, more or less, in Mass, the Lord revealed to him that uh, women would be included, so there was a special foundation for them. But anyway, he was meeting people, and uh, eventually women as well, not that far after, and he had that one main message, that to be holy and to be centered on Christ, we need to get to know the life of Jesus and contemplate him, hearkening back to early Christianity, where the lion's share of evangelization was performed by laity. And that laity contemplated the life of Christ as a habit, as a steady diet. And St. Josemaria was trying to direct people entrusted to his spiritual care to read the gospel, and to nourish themselves with it. I would almost say contemplate the scenes, speak to our Lord about it, reflect on those scenes, and bring those teachings, those examples to a concrete resolution lived in the thick of things, whether as students, as workers, as athletes, as partygoers, whatever, but to bring that gospel to their daily life as a consequence of deep contemplation. Just a couple of anecdotes on the side. During the 40s, as he was trying to get Opus Dei off the ground, he was giving many, many retreats throughout Spain. And virtually everybody remembered those retreats. They took copious notes 
for many reasons, but the main reason his audience would say, and these are priests, so, um, it's a challenging group when priests have to preach to priests, they said he brought the gospel to life, that he was familiar with it, that he was excited about it. He, he made it very much alive, so much so that after many decades, these same priests uh, recalled those retreats as if they had been given yesterday. What he did to facilitate this is to produce his first work, most famous one as well, a book of 999 aphorisms on following Jesus, speaking to him. The purpose of this book, that was preceded by a smaller book written in the early 30s called Spiritual Considerations. They were pulled from his own intimate notes, his own personal prayer. He would receive inspirations, locutions, Incidents he would notice that had a powerful supernatural meaning, conversations he had. Uh, the protagonist of a number of those points is himself, but he speaks about himself in third person, so it would be impossible to know who, who he was talking about without him, him saying it. And in one get-together the chapter on character, which is a little bit of a no-nonsense character, uh, chapter, uh, St. Josemaria re revealed that that was a biography of himself, or an autobiography of himself. But be it as it may, uh, he produced the way which was, um, which was began, begun by the book Spiritual Considerations. And it's interesting to note that the way was compiled during a very dark period of the history of Spain, of the history of the church. It was a period of many martyrs, never rivaled before, even in the early church. 7,000 priests and religious were executed during this war in a country of that size. That's a significant portion of priests that were executed. And so it was a, a very wounded country, and the church was suffering tremendously. And I say that because these points are brimming with optimism, a realistic optimism, but an optimism nevertheless. Great spiritual ambitions jump off the page, how to spread the gospel and and this effort to spread the gospel will always be successful if it's based on prayer, based on the cross, based on charity. And so the way was kind of a teaching device for these young people and older people too who were seeking his spiritual counsel through his preaching and through his spiritual direction. And so that was the original purpose, and that purpose still holds.
that it's, it kind of digests the gospel. It helps one informally talk to Jesus as a friend. I would say the other purpose, which is another way of looking at meditating on the gospel, is to deal with Jesus as friend and fall in love with Jesus. And hence, you will notice in the way the word love is always capitalized. And in the twilight of his life, St. Josemaria would say, I'm a sinner madly in love with Jesus Christ. He recommends, maybe for starters, that uh, people devote 10, 15 minutes to prayer. He was kind of precise. He says, well, if it's 10 minutes, it's 10 minutes. And do it at a set time and a set amount of time. And it's remote, it's connected, I was going to say remotely, but connected to Eucharistic adoration. Now, Eucharistic adoration can include rosaries and spiritual reading and contemplation, but mental prayer is, is specifically, whether it's 10 minutes, whether it's a half hour, whether it's an hour, specifically contemplating the life of our Lord, speaking to Him informally. And how do you use the way? Well, everyone has their own personal piety and personal freedom on how to use that wonderful spiritual book. Important hierarchical figures in the church to uh, a very humble worker have derived tremendous spiritual benefit from the way. And myself included, one of the characteristics of the way is that it it's never old hat it there's a certain freshness to the points it it's always applicable and there's many times a new application and how do you use it well you use you read a point uh, you use it as a stepping stone to say something to the lord maybe we just dwell on that point in silence in the presence of the Lord or it could be serve as a point of examination of conscience or maybe it has no relevance to us personally so then we move on to another point. Again, my recommendation is not to read it as a novel, obviously, or even as a spiritual book, but to read it in prayer and not to plow through it, maybe first time read through it to get an idea of the different points. But basically it is a, a journey of union with Christ, creating the conditions to connect with Christ, eliminating the obstacles. And uh, in a sense, you don't want to miss any of those points because they strike home in many instances and they help us talk to Jesus. The way does not substitute immersing ourselves in the gospel scenes and the rest of Scripture. It enhances that effort. So much so did St. Maria place importance on this particular devotion called mental prayer that in the early history of Opus Dei, the women's branch of Opus Dei 
take care of the domestic needs of conference centers and centers, creating an ambiance of love, of fraternity, uh, the hominess of the environment also serves as a reminder to have presence of God. And uh, so it's what the Blessed Mother did in Nazareth. So anyway, that's uh, one of the callings the certain women of Opus Dei have. Anyway, they in this new center that was under construction in Spain in the, I would guess, in the late 40s, uh, the women had a hard time getting their work done. There was interruptions. Dirt was tracked throughout the house. Their, their meal schedule was completely thrown off. And they were at wit's end, pulled St. Josemaria aside. And just to give a little bit of perspective, St. Josemaria literally went through a war, terrible persecutions, poverty, almost destitution, sickness, contradiction, persecution, etc. So he was resilient and I would say on a natural level tough. And these women are complaining and he's nodding and sympathizing uh, over the difficulties they are experiencing with the construction of the house. But they definitely, put it mildly, hit a hot button and they said things are so bad they don't have time to pray. And he spontaneously burst into tears and started to sob and had to walk out of the room. And um, he came back and obviously urged these well-intentioned women that this is a non-negotiable, that this is, this is intimately linked with the collective purpose of Opus Dei to be holy and to be centered on Christ, to be a light of Christ, so that we could bring him into the heart of the world. And hence, it's included in the way, in one of the points where he quotes Jesus, chapter 15 of of the Gospel of St. John, without me you could do nothing. And Lord, what do we do? What resolution should we make? Well, to seriously consider adoration of our Lord as we contemplate his life. And that we take advantage of this special book of points or aphorisms to adore the Lord, to get to know him, to learn how to speak to him as a friend, heart to heart, contemplating his life, and bringing it to a resolution of charity, of humility, of service, etc. Well, we turn our attention to the Blessed Virgin Mary to wind down, wind down this time of meditation, of prayer, of mental prayer, for that matter. And we refer briefly to the Rosary, which in fact is mental prayer. With the background music of the Hail Marys, we contemplate major events in the life of Jesus and Mary as well. And so we extend that mental prayer to the way we pray the rosary. But anyway, we 
look at the Blessed Mother in the Gospel of St. Luke, and she's depicted twice contemplating the words and the actions and the dispositions of her son. St. Luke mentions that twice. And we intuit that, even without a scriptural reference, this perfect person, the Blessed Mother, contemplating her son, identifying her desires with the will of God, living her only commandment, do whatever he tells you. Mary, pray for us and help us by winning the grace to do whatever your son tells us through the gospel, aided by the way. I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations you've communicated to me in this meditation. I ask your help in putting them into effect. My Immaculate Mother, St. Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me.